Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KG Kim Ladoon. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Daniel Golden discussed ransomware, a global challenge. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Daniel today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome everyone here today, as well as those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio, to the 450th, 450th meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting is coming to you from the Elks Events Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983 to invite foreign affairs experts each month to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks and information about upcoming forum programs are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. Audios of our speakers will now also be available on the website of the main monitor. If you're interested in keeping informed about key foreign affairs issues and want to become a member of the forum, you'll find our membership form on the website. To join us, just apply. Today we are pleased to have Mr. Daniel Golden with us to speak on Ransomware, a Global Challenge. Journalist and author Daniel Golden is a Boston-based senior editor and reporter at ProPublica. Mr. Golden has been instrumental in three Pulitzer Prizes, two as an editor and one as a reporter. Mr. Golden's most recent book, co-authored with ProPublica reporter Renee Dudley, is The Ransomware Hunting Team, which was published just this October by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Mr. Golden won a Pulitzer Prize as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal in 2004 for a series of articles on preferences in college admission for children of donors. He expanded that series into a national bestseller, The Price of Admission, How America's Ruling Class Buys Its Way into Elite Colleges and Who Gets Left Outside the Gates. An updated edition of that book was published in October of 2019. Mr. Mr. Golden co-edited a ProPublica series on Latin American asylum seekers caught between the U.S. government and the MS-13 gang, which won the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. Before joining ProPublica in October of 2016, he worked as the managing editor for education and enterprise at Bloomberg News. There, he edited a series about tax evasions, companies moving headquarters overseas to avoid taxes that earned Bloomberg's only Pulitzer Prize in 2015. Mr. Golden also spent 17 years as a staff reporter at the Boston Globe and served as a senior editor for investigations at Condé Nast Portfolio. Among many honors that Mr. Golden has received, he has won three George Polk Awards, three National Headliner Awards, the Sigma Chi Sigma Delta Chi Award, the Gerald Loeb Award, and the Overseas Press Public Press no, Overseas Press Club Award. He was a finalist for the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for a series exposing recruiting abuses for, for by for-profit colleges. Whew. Quite a career, Dan. I want to welcome you to the Mid Coast Forum. <coughs> Well, uh, thanks very much, George, for that uh, generous introduction, and uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and Kathy and I are, are very happy to be visiting this you know, beautiful region of, of Maine. And uh, I'd particularly like to thank Matt Storen for inviting me. Uh, his leadership strengthened the, the Boston Globe's coverage uh, when I was a reporter there, and later he was very helpful on, on my first book, The Price of Admission, I wanted to do some research and interviews at, at the University of Notre Dame where he was heading the news office and, and he generously provided the access I, I needed and was a, was a very good host to us. 
I must admit, I I'm, I'm, was slightly taken aback to be asked to speak to a foreign relations group because I've never really considered myself a foreign policy expert. Uh, if I'm an expert on anything, it's probably college admissions or maybe the Red Sox. But uh, then again, all New Englanders consider themselves experts on the Red Sox. Um, but after spending four years working with uh, Renee Dudley on, on our new book, uh, The Ransomware Hunting Team, and on the ProPublica series on which it was partly based, uh, I, I guess I do know something about ransomware, and there's no doubt that ransomware is emerging as a foreign policy issue uh, and a significant one. Uh, I guess most notably, it ranked at the top of the agenda for a summit meeting between Presidents uh, Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin in June 2021, and again in a follow-up phone call between the two leaders. You may recall this, uh, Biden pressured Putin to crack down on ransomware groups operating in Russia against American targets. And Russia then uh, did arrest a few token hackers, apparently in the hope that the U.S. would reciprocate by looking the other way when Russia invaded Ukraine. But when the U.S. instead supplied arms to Ukraine, Putin stopped harassing the ransomware gangs and began recruiting them for his war effort. Uh, I'm sorry, his special military operation. Um, while international cooperation has always been needed to thwart certain offenses, like piracy, for example, uh, ransomware poses arguably the most important criminal threat yet to global security. Before the cyber era, if you think about it, most major crimes took place in person. If the police showed up fast enough, they could arrest the perpetrators at the scene. But the advent of cyber separated the criminal from the victim and from law enforcement, often by vast distances. It's an international crime crossing national boundaries, and so it requires international action. I mean, ransomware can be described as a kind of digital kidnapping. The criminals hack into a computer or a network, then they encrypt the files with a secret code, freezing them and essentially holding them hostage, and they demand a ransom to be paid in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin for a key to unlock the files. All of that can be, and usually is, accomplished over great distances. A gang can commit ransomware and be paid the ransom without ever leaving its home country, which probably doesn't have an extradition treaty with the victim's country, as in the case of Russian or Iranian gangs that attack American targets. So the U.S. can't bring these hackers to justice unless they decide to vacation someplace where we do have an extradition treaty and the authorities there cooperate with us, which takes a lot of time and, and red tape. Let's just for a minute contrast that situation with the traditional kidnapping for ransom from which ransomware gets its name. Prominent kidnap victims in history have included Julius Caesar, Richard the Lionhearted, and the 20-month-old son of aviator Charles Lindbergh. Some of you may remember in 1973, Calabrian criminals kidnapped the eldest grandchild and namesake of oil baron J. Paul Getty. They snatched the teenager in the streets of Rome and demanded $17 million, which was a fortune for that time. The youth's grandfather refused, famously saying, I have 14 grandchildren, and if I pay a penny of ransom, I'll have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. The, the only long-distance aspect of that kidnapping was that the criminals used the Postal Service twice, first to send the ransom note, and then, after the initial demand was rejected, to mail the boy's right ear to a newspaper to show that they were serious. The ear actually didn't arrive for three weeks because of a postal strike in Italy. In the end, the family paid a $2.2 million ransom. Nine people were charged with the kidnapping, and two were convicted. By contrast, in this new world of ransomware, this kind of criminal conviction is very rare indeed. What traditional kidnapping for ransom and ransomware do have in common is that they raise the same moral dilemma, to pay or not to pay. 
When, if ever, is it right to reward criminals and thereby to encourage more crime? In traditional kidnapping, the risk to reject rejecting the ransom demand is that the victim may be hurt, like Getty's grandson, or killed. In ransomware, the stakes are similarly high. Without access to its computer files and networks, a company may, may go out of business, a university may have to cancel online classes, a hospital may not be able to treat critically ill patients. In our book, we tell the story of an elderly patient with a brain tumor whose local hospital in rural Oregon was disabled by a Russia-based ransomware group, Ryuk. His wife had to drive him 140 miles round trip every day over the mountains through ice and snow to another hospital for radiation and chemotherapy, making what was already an ordeal even more agonizing. There have even been deaths attributed to ransomware. When ransomware knocked out the fetal heart monitors at the nurse's station in an Alabama hospital where Tyrani Kid was giving birth, the nurses didn't notice that the fetus was in distress. Kid's daughter was born severely brain damaged and died soon afterwards. The FBI advises victims against paying the ransom, but it offers no practical alternative. In 2019, a ransomware attack that apparently originated from Turkey or Eastern Europe struck the city government of Baltimore, Maryland, disabling vital city services. Residents couldn't sell their homes because the city couldn't provide the documents attesting to the prior history of the property, and they couldn't pay their water bills. Baltimore's mayor courageously spurned the $75,000 ransom demand. Unfortunately, the ransomware code couldn't be cracked, some services couldn't be restored for months, and the cost of recovery reached $18 million. The mayor's decision not to pay the ransom then received a lot of local criticism, and when he ran for re-election, he only got 6% of the vote. Ransomware has been international ever since its beginnings, more than 30 years ago, when digital technology was far more primitive than it is today. The man who invented ransomware was the late Joseph Pop. Somewhat surprisingly, since most ransomware hackers today are based in Russia, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, or North Korea, Pop was an American. He grew up in Cleveland, attended Ohio State, and then earned his doctorate in anthropology at Harvard. A primatologist who did his research in Africa, he was supposed to be the next Diane Fossey or Jane Goodall, but instead he became a kind of Indiana Jones gone bad. Instead of studying baboons, he spent his time dreaming up get-rich-quick schemes. He sold t-shirts and postcards to tourists, and then he put on a helmet and, and a hunting outfit and an elephant gun on his shoulder and lead paying customers on walking safaris. And he, and he had several more bizarre schemes. My favorite was inspired by the elephant bones that he would notice in the grass as he tracked the baboons around a game preserve in Kenya. He was very familiar with the folk legend that elephants know that their end is near and they go to die in a predetermined spot. No such elephant graveyard has ever been found but Pop wanted to create one by relocating those scattered bones to an area behind his research station, advertising it as an authentic elephant graveyard and charging admission to tourists. Only with great difficulty did his assistant, who was also his girlfriend, that was a pattern of his, uh, persuade him to abandon the plan. Pop eventually quarreled with both Kenyan authorities and his Harvard patrons. In December 1989, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, while staying in an apartment in London, he sent discs purporting to be about AIDS education to thousands of medical researchers, mostly in Europe. He didn't send any discs to the US, probably because it had already passed a law against computer hacking. When the recipients put the discs in their computers, the files froze and a message told them to send almost $400 to a post office box in Panama. The scheme became known as the AIDS Trojan because it used AIDS education as a Trojan horse to infiltrate computers. 
while many recipients either didn't try the disk or didn't run it enough times to encrypt their files, as many as 1,000 computers were paralyzed, and the unprecedented nature of the crime caused a worldwide furor. Pop was arrested in his hometown of Cleveland and extradited to England from where he'd sent the disks. Uh, he pleaded insanity, and he shrewdly acted so crazy, he, he put condoms on his nose, a cardboard box on his head, things like that, so the judge finally gave up and let him off on condition that he never come back to England again. He returned to the U.S. and gave up ransomware. In fact, he co-founded a butterfly conservatory in upstate New York that bears his name. Kathy and I visited this uh, serene sanctuary, which contains a colorful array of butterflies and exotic animals, and we saw a plaque in the entrance hall that pays tribute to Pop, who's long dead, he died in a car accident in 2006, as a, quote, naturalist, evolutionary anthropologist, writer, and brilliant thinker. But nowhere did it mention his more infamous legacy, ransomware. Ransomware didn't really blossom until about 20 years after the AIDS Trojan, about around 2012. That's when an international cyber currency, Bitcoin, emerged that was difficult to trace and made it easier for hackers to collect payments safely. Initially, like POP, the criminals targeted individuals and demanded only a few hundred dollars. But ransomware has exploded in the last five or six years, while Renee and I were researching our book, to become the defining cyber scourge of our time. It has disabled major corporations, universities, school systems, hospitals, government agencies, and even the entire government of Costa Rica. Often demands now are in the millions or tens of millions of dollars. Here in Maine, victims have included the Presque Isle Police Department, as well as rural wastewater systems in Limestone and Mount Desert Island. Two of the largest companies in the state, Maine Health and Hannaford, were affected by a December 2021 ransomware attack on their payroll manager, a Massachusetts-based human resources firm named Kronos. And at the enjoyable reception we had last night, I heard a couple stories about nonprofits in the area that, that were recently hit by ransomware. Um, my own publisher, Macmillan, shut down for a week this past summer because of a ransomware attack. Whether it had anything to do with our book or not, I don't know, but the, you know, the timing was of concern. The attack that made the biggest headlines was probably the one that shut down the Colonial Pipeline in May 2021, the country's biggest pipeline. You may remember that it stopped the flow of 45% of fuel consumed on the East Coast and shuttered gas stations across the Southeast. As ransomware has spiraled, a whole industry of enablers has, has sprung up around it. They include cyber insurers, who have on occasion encouraged victims to pay the ransom because it can make things more predictable and as in Baltimore's case, cheaper than trying to recover the files, as well as so-called data recovery firms. These firms pretend, they tell the victim, we can find the key to unlock the files, but what they really do is just pay the ransom and then they charge the victim the ransom amount plus a hefty fee. So the victim gets, uh, she deceived twice, essentially. Local, state, and national law enforcement agencies have struggled to deal with ransomware. Some local police departments have been paralyzed by ransomware attacks, and they've lost key files, such as evidence they need to prosecute criminals. On the national level, the FBI and the Secret Service are responsible for investigating ransomware. The Secret Service has had a few successes but it suffers from the drawback during the election years. It pulls agents off cyber investigations to act as bodyguards for candidates and their families. The FBI, for its part, has not adjusted well to cybercrime. It has some cyber experts, but not enough. And it, it has this misguided philosophy that any agent can learn to handle any type of crime, which doesn't really work well with cyber. Also, its macho culture expects agents to be physically fit and carry a gun, which rules out a lot of techies. Um, the, the FBI does have some agents with cyber talent and experience 
whom other agents refer to as the Geek Squad, as well as non-agent computer scientists who are nicknamed dolphins because they have their own language that isn't understood by humans. But there aren't enough of either group, and they frequently leave for the private sector where they receive more pay and respect. Our book describes a 2015 meeting where about a dozen of these disenchanted cyber, uh, cyber agents aired their complaints to then FBI Director James Comey. Comey told them he knew there was a problem, but that it would take another generation to fix it. Well, that kind of decades-long time frame failed to anticipate the rapid proliferation of ransomware. Ill-equipped to deal with cybercrime in general, the FBI was slow to rec recognize the ransomware threat in particular. Initially, the Bureau dismissed it as an ankle-biter crime because of the small ransom demands. When those demands ramped up, the Bureau was unprepared and hapless. It's hardly surprising, then, that the most effective group combating ransomware is a private international organization called the Ransomware Hunting Team. It's an elite, invitation-only society of about a dozen tech wizards who are devoted to cracking ransomware and who are the heroes of our book. Across the globe, this obscure band of geeky volunteers is often the only recourse for victims who can't afford or refuse out of principle to pay ransoms to cyber criminals. The team has cracked more than 300 major ransomware strains and variants, saving an estimated 4 million victims from paying billions of dollars in ransom without charging a penny. Most of the ransomware hunting team members upend the usual stereotypes about achievement. They're improbable success stories with a technical virtuosity that's largely self-taught. Some come from backgrounds of poverty or abuse that helped galvanize them to fight bullies. Because they're combating criminals who might retaliate against them, several hide behind aliases or online identities. Most have never met each other in person. Few of them know the real name of the group's most reclusive member, a Hungarian with the Twitter handle at MalwareHunterTeam. Most of the team's members have regular jobs, typically in cybersecurity, but cracking ransomware is their passion. Several have a kind of tunnel vision. Once they commit to solving a problem, they plug away at it nonstop for hours or days, oblivious to the world around them. At least three of them have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which is normally associated with being easily distracted, but it can also manifest itself, as it does in their cases, as a state of deep, prolonged concentration called hyperfocus. They share an urge, almost a compulsion, to help humanity and fight cybercrime, like an Internet Justice League. They don't care about getting rich, otherwise they might be devoting their skills to developing ransomware, not foiling it. Victims find them on the Internet, and they hear from as many ransomware victims in a day as the FBI does in a year. The most prolific code breaker on the team, and probably in the world, and the protagonist of our book is named Michael Gillespie. He's known online as Demon Slay 335. Michael lives in a modest house in central Illinois with his wife Morgan, eight cats, two dogs, and a rabbit. He never went to college. Starting in high school, he worked for more than a decade for modest wages as a tech repairman at a store called Nerds on Call. He's overcome cancer, as well as poverty so searing that he and Morgan had their car impounded and almost lost their home. Each month, they had to choose which utility bill they were going to pay. Would their electricity be shut off or their water? None of these obstacles deterred his quest to save the world from ransomware. He first encountered ransomware when several of his nerds on call customers were attacked. He immersed himself in learning how to crack the codes with the help of his mentor on the hunting team, Fabian Wosar, who also figures prominently in our book. A high school dropout from Germany, Fabian moved to England because he suspected that Russian hackers had tracked him down there and that his life might be in danger because of his exploits in fighting ransomware. Fabian has always reminded me of fictional private detectives like Mycroft Holmes, Sherlock's brother, 
or Nero Wolf, the, the wrecked out hero. Like them, he's a morbidly obese uh, recluse who rarely leaves his apartment. One of Michael Gillespie's achievements was creating a site called ID Ransomware, where victims can upload their encrypted files. It identifies the ransomware strain and whether it's been cracked or not. If it has, the site then provides the victim with the key. Recognizing the importance of this feat, the FBI honored Michael with a community leadership award. It has also used him as an informant in several investigations. If the criminal's ransomware technique is flawless, then the code can't be broken. But they often take shortcuts and make mistakes that the hunting team capitalizes on. In the book, we describe some of the ransomware victims whom Michael and the team have rescued. They range from a wedding photographer in the Philippines to a Swedish designer of some of the world's fastest and most expensive automobiles to an inner-city London elementary school serving immigrant families from Pakistan, India, and Eastern Europe. That attack froze the school's computer system, including hundreds of thousands of photos going back several years that teachers used to track the students' progress. All your files has been locked, read the ransom note to the school from an Iranian gang, Vash Serena. The structure and data within your files have been irrevocably changed. You will not be able to work with them, read them, or see them. It is the same thing as losing them forever, but with our help, you can restore them. We can decrypt all your files after paying the ransom. We have no reason to deceive you after receiving the ransom, since we are not barbarians, and moreover, will harm our business. You have two days to decide to pay. After two days, decryption price will be double. After one week, it will be triple. Therefore, we recommend that you make payment with a few, within a few hours. The school couldn't afford the 10,000 euro ransom demand. After a fruitless negotiation with Vash Serena, the school's IT consultant stumbled on a website called Bleeping Computer. Run by one of the hunting team's founders, Bleeping Computer is one part demilitarized zone, one part neighborhood pub, a place where all the actors in the ransomware world, victims, hackers, insurers, law enforcement, cybersecurity experts, intersect. On a forum there, the consultant was advised to, to upload an encrypted file to ID Ransomware, Michael Gillespie's site, and to contact Demon Slay 335. Michael, who had discovered a vulnerability in Vash Serena's coding, used it to generate the key to recover the school's files. But there's a downside to these success stories. When the team notifies victims that it has cracked a code, they don't pay. Sooner or later, as the money stops flowing in, the ransomware gang realizes that its code has been cracked. They then fix the flaw so that the code is no longer vulnerable. As a result, the hunting team and other code breakers contribute indirectly to improving the quality of ransomware and making it an even bigger danger. Take the example of the colonial pipeline attack for which a group called Darkside was responsible. Months before, when Darkside had attacked another victim, Michael and Fabian cracked its code. They succeeded in keeping their victory quiet. They were very discreet. But then a cybersecurity firm, Bitdefender, found the same problem with Darkseid's code and boasted about it in a press release. Darkseid said, thank you very much, and promptly fixed the code. So when it attacked Colonial, its code couldn't be broken, and Colonial paid a $4 million plus uh, ransom. Ransomware is getting even scarier for another reason. Increasingly, it's being sponsored by foreign governments and evolving from a get-rich-quick scheme for hackers to a tool that nation-states can wield to harm adversaries. One early example of these connections was Maxim Yakubitz, the Russian cyber criminal behind the ransomware group Evil Corp. It attacked organizations from the UK's National Health Service to the PGA of America, the golf organization, with a strain called BitPamer demanding as much as $200,000 in ransom. At the same time, Yakubitz was working for the FSB, as you know, a successor to the Soviet-era KGB, and conducting cyber operations for the Putin regime. The U.S. eventually placed Evil Corp under sanctions, citing its connection to the FSB, and it indicted Yakubitz, but neither action had much effect. Enjoying Putin's protection, 
Yakubitz was remarkably brazen. He drove a customized Lamborghini with a license plate that translated to thief. He spent more than $330,000 on his wedding, a lavish celebration at a golf club near Moscow that included a performance by a well-known Russian pop singer. Whatever their political views, hackers in Russia and elsewhere fear that if they don't cooperate with their country's regime, they will be put out of business, imprisoned, or handed over to Western law enforcement for diplomatic advantage. When Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the most devastating ransomware gangs, Conti, announced its, quote, full support of Russian government, unquote, and said that it would use its, quote, full capacity to deliver retaliatory measures in case the Western warmongers attempt to target critical infrastructure in Russia or any Russian-speaking region of the world. As Russia's conventional forces flounder, it's increasingly likely that the Putin regime will take up Conti and its counterparts on such offers and launch a cyber war against the US and other Western countries arming Ukraine. We can expect a rash of state-sponsored ransomware attacks by gangs in Russia and its ally Iran against key public and private and institutions and services not only in Ukraine but in the US, such as power plants, pipelines, hospitals, and government agencies. In some cases, rather than demanding money, the hackers may seek political objectives, such as the return of prisoners. I think we're all familiar with prisoner swaps now. Uh, Russia and other enemy nations are also likely to recruit the gangs as cyber spies. Traditionally, ransomware gangs lock a target's files and demand money in return for the key. But in, alar in an alarming trend, they've been gaining leverage in negotiations by stealing victims' data before they encrypt it and then releasing the sensitive information, such as personal health records or intellectual property, employee data, unless a ransom is paid. They could use the same tactic to gather national security intelligence for their governments, enhancing their status at home and striking a blow against the US. What steps can the US take to consider to, to counter the ransomware crisis? The answer, unfortunately, is not as simple as banning ransom payments because some codes can't be broken and some victims have little choice but to pay. When companies, healthcare facilities, and city governments shut down for prolonged periods, everybody suffers. Fortunately, there are other ways to fight back. Let's start with the FBI. In the wake of the colonial pipeline attack, which FBI Director Christopher Wray likened to the September 11th terrorist attacks, the U.S. government is starting to understand the scope and urgency of the ransomware threat. The Justice Department launched a ransomware task force. President Biden signed a law requiring critical infrastructure entities to report cyber attacks within 72 hours and ransom payments within 24 hours. And the FBI began cooperating more enthusiastically with the ransomware hunting team. Still, the FBI needs to bring in more tech experts and to raise their status and influence in the Bureau. One model might be the Dutch National Police, which has earned a reputation as one of the world's leading cybercrime-fighting organizations. They began focusing on ransomware because many gangs set up their servers in the Netherlands, which has fast internet speeds as well as some favorable privacy laws. The Dutch set up a high-tech crime unit where computer specialists with no police background make up half the staff. They don't have to pass physical fitness tests or carry guns. Each one is paired with a traditional law enforcement officer and they work cases together. That high-tech crime unit actively recruits candidates on the autism spectrum who have unusual technical abil abilities and designs the work environment to accommodate them. It also enlists the help of the hunting team and other private researchers. While it can't arrest ransomware gangs based in Russia or Iran, just like we can't, the unit has caught quite a few of their accomplices and taken down their servers. The lessons of the Dutch police are replicable on a global scale. There should be international cooperation involving both public and private entities. Law enforcement needs to hire more cyber experts and work with code-cracking private researchers like the hunting team. It also should focus on taking down the hackers' servers and other infrastructure and tracking payments to cyber currency wallets. Private business can also pitch in. Before providing cyber coverage, 
Insurers should make sure that potential clients have the best available cybersecurity. There should be enforceable standards and regulations to stop data recovery firms from exploiting victims. Microsoft has its own digital crimes unit, consisting of more than 40 full-time investigators, analysts, data scientists, engineers, and attorneys that investigates the criminals and infrastructure behind malware and ransomware attacks. Other tech companies should do the same. Email providers should oust the gangs from the email platforms that they use to negotiate with victims. Only with a massive, coordinated international effort with governments around the world and the private sector joining forces can ransomware be reined in. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Uh, not only interesting, but really, really timely. Uh, it's one of these things where you really, uh, it's, it's frightening, I yes, guess, to say the least. Um, I usually take the advantage of being the moderator to ask the first question. Uh, you ended your presentation by talking about the need for international efforts. Are there any, are there any, any international efforts ongoing? Um, it sounds like not just the United States, but Western Europe, at least, is uh, subject to a lot of these uh, attacks. Any, any groups getting together, uh, uh, government groups, or how's, how's that working or not working? I think there's, you know, the same level of coordination that there would be in working any, any criminal case, you know, uh, that, that crosses national lines and, and law enforcement agencies cooperate. And, as I say, they, they tend to use the hunting team uh, more now than they used to, so they're bringing in the private sector, but I think it, there's not sort of a special effort beyond what we, we generally see, and there probably should be one. Is it viewed simply as a, as a, uh, a, cr a crime, a criminal? I mean, is there a, a, any international agreement that could come out of this type of thing? I mean, that would Other be great, but, you know, beyond the sort of efforts I described with uh, the U.S. Uh, trying to get Russia to cooperate, I haven't, I, I'm not aware of any international treaties or anything like that, but certainly it should be on the table. How about in countries like Russia and China? Are there a, a lot of attacks there? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, in Russia, uh, You'll find a lot of ransomware attacks on the U.S. The, the programs that they use, the coding, are designed to stop if they encounter uh, uh, documents in a certain language within the computer files. So, so they're instructed, basically, if, uh, you know, if, if you're coming from Russia and you attack a computer system and it seems to be of a Russian company, stop attacking. And so uh, they do that by sort of, you know, restricting what language is the, uh, is the ransomware going to act against. So in that sense, you know, Russia's, Russian gangs essentially take efforts to make sure that they're not hurting their own country. And there have been, I mean, attacks on, on Russia in the, in the past, but, you know, far smaller in number. And, uh, you know, the gangs for their own self-preservation don't generally attack their own nest. And that's true not just in Russia, but in the Middle East and other places where ransomware gangs are active. So uh, here's a question. Ransomware is a subset of malware, some type. Why isn't the defense a, more ma a major driver of software design and development? Why isn't it built into the software that, to resist these? Well, ransomware is kind of, it, it's, it's a little bit different. It's kind of a two-stage process, right? The first is it gets into the system just like any other hack does, you know, through a phishing expert, ex, uh, effort or exploiting some vulnerability, but then when it gets inside, it's really sort of cryptography rather than standard malware. And I'm no technical expert, but it's, you know, it's, it's more of a, a coding and encryption knowledge is needed probably rather than standard software knowledge. But also, you know, this, the cybersecurity industry, it does devote some efforts to cracking ransomware, but, uh, you know, it, it, it makes its money out of... Uh, defense rather than out of, uh, you know, cracking codes. And if there were no ransomware, there wouldn't be as much need for cybersecurity. So, you know, they, they focus on, uh, you know, the best defense rather than actually uh, 
cracking the code and eliminating the ransomware. When you talk about these, the, uh, the ransomware uh, hunting team uh, breaking the codes or attempting to break the codes, do they also try to track down the perpetrators? Well, it's funny. It's a group of about 12 people, and they have different specialties. So a couple of them, like Michael and Fabian, are, uh, you know, they're, they're the code breakers. A couple others, what they do is sort of go around and search for, for samples of ransomware code, uh, you know, so that they make sure they're on top of whatever the new types of ransomware are. And there's various databases where they find ransomware codes. And there's one guy who for several years was passionate about actually tracking down the criminals. And this guy was an expert at going on the internet and his name was Daniel Gallagher and just tracking their identities. And in a couple of cases, he tracked them down and, uh, you know, a couple of them he scared or persuaded into switching sides. You know, this was a, it was a, you know, teenager who was using ransomware and Gallagher found him and threatened him and embarrassed him and uh, the kid came over to the other side and now uh, cracks ransomware. So uh, it can be done, but, you know, they don't have the, the resources and skills of a law enforcement agency to go after the criminals on a large scale, but it, that was his kind of, he took it personally and his, his, his mission was to catch them and he, he had some successes. And someone's asked whether, whether just backing up your files might be a solution to ransomware. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's better than not doing it, but it's not a uh, total, total protection. The, you know, ransomware has on many occasions gotten into backups, and, uh, you know, obviously you would want to back them up on something unrelated to the Internet and so on, but, they, you know, it's... Uh, and when they, they get in, if they wherever they get into, if they have taken some personal information, then they can use that as a hammer, too. So uh, it's, not a, uh, it's not a perfect solution. And then here's another one asking about uh, the fact that you said that most of the demands are made in terms of cryptocurrency. Has there been an impact in, on the ransomware business due to the large changes in the value of cryptocurrency? Or do they quote it in euros and you have to convert it yourself to cryptocurrency or whatever? That's, that's a good question. I'm not, you know, the ransom notes I've seen will usually say, you know, this many Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin fluctuates, the, the value of the ransom payment will, uh, will, would fluctuate too. But uh, maybe some of the recent problems have led them to change. But, you know, there's many different kinds of cryptocurrency. So, you know, one of them goes out of style or, or whatever, out of favor, or becomes more vulnerable, or law enforcement is better at tracking the payments. They could switch to another cryptocurrency. It's not unlike email platforms, you know, there was, I think they were, they were kicked off Gmail fairly effectively in terms of negotiations between the uh, hackers and the victims. The, you know, they switched to another email platform. So it's a, it's a bit of a whack-a-mole situation. As is usual, that's right. Then can you talk, someone's asked, can you talk a little bit more about cyber insurance? Sure. So, uh, you know, cyber insurance, a few years ago, when we did our ProPublica series, we had a piece about how uh, cyber insurers were facilitating ransomware because they were encouraging their clients uh, to pay the ransom because it was cheaper than, um, uh, you know, paying being down for months and uh, trying to recover the files, and that's highly uncertain. How long will it take to recover? How long will you get back on your feet? So this, but this was when ransoms were demanded were 50,000 or 100,000 or $500,000. So what's happened now is as the ransomware demands have gotten enormous in the millions, it's harder for cyber insurers to say, just go ahead and pay that $30 million. So, um, they, some places have stopped, some cyber insurers have simply stopped covering ransomware, you know, others have, have made the, uh, you know, made the conditions more difficult in terms of, you know, being, um, you know, coverage, and so uh, it's kind of in flux, but there's been an evolution from when we wrote our series to when we wrote the book about the, how eager insurers, cyber insurers are to make the payments. And some of the comments about the fact that some of the Colonial Pipeline's ransom payment was recovered. How often does that happen? And is, there, is, that, is it improving, the, the ability to um, 
recover some of this. I think th that was pretty rare, and I think it came from a, you know, a tip that they, the law enforcement got. I don't think it showed the ability to you know, just crack cryptocurrency and get the money back on a regular basis. Let me see. I've had a couple here. Another one that's similar to before, the vulnerability seems to be computers that are connected to the internet. Um, I know when I worked in government, we had a, a classified system which was not connected to the internet and then a, uh, another system. Is that a solution for places like schools and businesses to simply isolate their, 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 these systems from the internet? I mean, I think that would help in terms of uh, deterring ransomware, whether that's really a practical option for them is something I don't really know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And does the FBI or CIA have a, a, something similar to the hunting team? The FBI doesn't really focus on uh, cracking ransomware, and I, I don't think it is, that, you know, it's really the FBI that's the lead agency, so I don't think the CIA would, but I think the FBI feels that it would simply take too many people and too many resources and that they, you know, they, they, they don't do it a lot. Um, they, uh, and, and in fact, they didn't seem to see it as a priority, as I mentioned, and for years and maybe still don't. But now they do cooperate more with the hunting team. So if it has a, I mean, they're more interested if it has a solution that can find a key. But I don't think the FBI does much of it themselves. It's more the hunting team, a few other groups like them, and to some extent cybersecurity companies that uh, are more likely to do the cracking. And you know, the, because uh, you know, probably a lot of the best tech people are in the private sector, I'm not sure the FBI would have the capacity anyway. Human capacity. Not enough nerds. Right. Who, who want to carry guns and uh, pass physical <laughs> fitness tests. <laughs> Uh, then, are there, are, do you know, are there any patterns that are emerging or any rhyme or reason to who gets attacked in these? Or does it seem to be kind of random? Not random from the standpoint of anyone is vulnerable. Well, a couple answers to that. One is, you know, the, the ransomware gangs, they do a lot of research in selecting their targets. You know, they'll get in there first with the hack and they'll be able to look at all the documents and see how much money you have and, and uh, you know, what, you, what assets are available and and what they what also they might be able to blackmail you with if they take the information you know before before they actually launch the ransomware attack so so the selection of the targets is not random in the least now in terms of who they attack i mean you know to some extent they're looking for low hanging fruit so that um, you know banks and financial institutions generally have extremely good cybersecurity you don't see as many attacks on you know major banks because they're they're harder to get into so you'll see an awful lot of attacks on, uh, you know, nonprofit organizations and, uh, uh, you know, hospitals, uh, school districts, uh, universities, places where cybersecurity is not necessarily the, the ultimate priority and where they don't have a huge amount of money to spend on it. So I would say that, you know, they have had their successes with different corporations, but, you know, the financial sector has probably been less affected than some of these other sectors in social service and academia and places like that. And well, government agencies, a lot of local and, you know, local government offices don't have much dough or much cybersecurity expertise and, and they, get, uh, they get hit a lot. And as I said, even including local police departments. It was interesting also, a number of the local to police departments were among those tricked by the data recovery firms. So that shows a kind of lack of sophistication on the part of local law enforcement. You commented about the fact that uh, some of the governments like those in Russia are either looking the other way of these crimes or actively cooperating in them. Is there any evidence that any of the Western companies, uh, countries are you know, um, gearing up to do similar efforts in, in Russia or other countries? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised by that, you know, because my book Spy Schools is all about sort of the two-way street in, in spying, but I don't, um, I don't have any particular knowledge of it. And how about, uh, you know, is this something that the colleges and universities are picking up? Are there any colleges that are actively teaching 
uh, code breaking that could be related to ransomware? Well, well I think there is, uh, there are courses on, you know, encryption and decryption at, you know, good computer science programs or graduate schools. I don't, I don't know if they look specifically at ransomware codes, but, um, I mean, I think it, I think some universities do have courses and possibly in degrees and things like decryption. And I've got a couple more here before we finish. One, you mentioned your publisher had had a ransomware incident. Have there been any other attacks related to the, you, this, the books or your series of books that directed uh, toward you personally or you know, other organizations you're associated with? No, uh, and uh, thankfully. Um, <laughs> and uh, the one on, on our publisher, I mean, I wish we knew more about it. You know, Macmillan was as closed-mouthed with me and Renee as they were with the rest of the world. So we don't know who it was from or how much the demand was or whether they paid it or anything like that. We just know that we couldn't reach our editor for a week and, you know, they couldn't reach their authors and so on. But, um, you know, so for me personally, that's been the, the closest it's come other than meeting people who tell me stories about how they were attacked or their organization was attacked. But I think just a final question. What, in your view, are additional things that we're not doing that we should be doing, either as individuals, as corporations, as governments, to counter this, this effort? Well, I think one thing that, would, that certainly would help is transparency. You know, now, one of our pieces in the ProPublica series was about how uh, publicly traded corporations rarely reported that they're hit by ransomware because it's an embarrassment. They don't, you know, want to admit that their cybersecurity was penetrated and so on. But um, now, so the SEC has has promulgated some regulations to try and pr prevent that and make more require more reporting. And but I think it's still a problem that that places that get hit by ransomware like our publisher, don't want to talk about it, you know? And so it, they don't really want the FBI looking around in their affairs. Uh, they don't uh, want their investors or their clients to know they had a problem. And I think this secrecy kind of, uh, you know, abets the purposes of the ransomware gangs. I mean, if people, if these attacks were in the news every day, as they probably should be, there would be more attention paid. It would be a higher priority people would understand it better and there would be a greater chance for collective action. So I think the, you know, the, the uh, trans, you know, greater transparency would um, go a long way. Well, I want to thank you very much then. Really appreciate thank it. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it being here. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Daniel Golden. If you miss part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kim Ladu. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.